10,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics is discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be talking with Carrot Quinn, a long distance hiker who shares her perspective on sexism, racism, accessibility in hiking, and much, much more. But first, hey Mel, how are you? It's good to be back. Yeah. It's good to be back. It's so good to be back with you also. Yeah. Oh my God. I just have not been in the mix at all. Um, I know. One week, off, one week I- off for May Day, and then I recorded with Timothy. It was a lovely episode, but. I missed you. Thanks for picking up my slack. It's not really slack, but I've been going through some shit in my life. And it's not bad. Everything's fine. Like, I'm fine. It's just other people in my life. So I had to kind of, my energy tank was low and I had to spread myself thin. It's also the end of the semester. So I had a lot going on. So thank you very much, Rachel, for letting me have that time. Of course. It was very abrupt. So yeah, things are looking better now. I'm going to be off school as soon as I submit grades. I'm feeling good, doing some yogs. It's all good. Just needed some needed some time. Life is good. I'm looking forward to, I don't want to say I'm looking forward to summer, but I'm looking forward to some of the plans that I have in summer, which includes actually going to Portland to hang out with my friends. Great. Um, and perhaps our guest of the week will still be in Portland. I'll have to check in with her. So yeah. at any rate, how are you doing? Uh, I'm okay. We uh, we're you know sometimes on the same same wavelength of things, and it's also been not not quite as chaotic as things have been for you. But um, partly because I'm not working full time, but lots of you know a mix of sort of personal stuff and continuing listeners. I I don't know if I've like officially announced that my plan currently is to not live in Boston pretty soon. But um, I still don't have full-time work, so I'm just sort of trying to figure that out. And I'm applying to lots and lots of jobs, not in academia, uh, which is which is tough because career tra- transitions are tough. And turns out you don't get a lot of job offers <laughs> when you are not sort of a seasoned expert in a particular area. So um, that's mostly been my life. I finished up, I was adjuncting uh, two classes, which folks know, uh, and those wrapped up. Um, I had a lovely... I don't remember if I talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, but I don't think I don't think we had an episode since then. But I had my tough students over at my home for sort of a celebration for the last class. That was really nice. And all my grades are in. So adjuncting fucking sucks. It feels hard on your soul, especially if you have had the the benefit and the privilege as I did. Um, although it shouldn't be a fucking privilege. Like everybody should be able yeah. to do that. But regardless, the contrast of adjuncting compared to, you know, being a full time professor is 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 stark. And so it was a mixed bag. I love my students. I love teaching, but it didn't feel as good as I usually do at the end of a semester because it was so exploitative. Um, but yeah, grades are in. I'm applying for jobs. Got some freelance work that I'm excited about. I uh, wrote a story about a feminist wrestling group here in Boston that my friend Cassidy is in um, that will be published shortly, and I'll let people know when it is. It was a lot of fun. It was sort of like real journalism. I like interviewed the wrestlers That's and awesome. It was super cool, Mel. You would really, I think you'd really like this this crew. It was um, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, staying busy with that and planning for this trip to Alaska that I mentioned on in the interview that people are about to hear, which I'm going on because it is for my mom's 60th birthday, and I promised myself for many years that. I would take her, find a way to take her to Alaska because it's her bucket list item. So planning for that, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And uh, that's where I'm at. I'm excited for so, people to hear this interview. Me too. Carrot is awesome. Super I awesome. bit my tongue multiple times because I just wanted to riff off of what she was saying. But totally, totally. Listeners, longtime listeners will be like, oh, my God, y'all should just be like in a crew together. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll start a crew. But <laughs> she is rad. Uh, yeah. She also, this is not part of her bio, I don't think, but like, I'm excited to share the fact that she exists with many people because she used to be the anarchist train hopper. Mm-hmm. Very nostalgic. Totally. And 
she's just rad. Just read about her. and just Yeah, that's actually, that's funny that you bring that up because that's something I kind of wanted to bring up too to say like you had practice, like punks, a lot of punk, like like crusty punks. I don't know if she identified as crusty. Sorry, Carrot, we're having I don't <laughs> all this so. conversation about you. Certain types of punks get good practice like with what hiking requires, right? Oh my God, like, it makes total sense yeah. that train hoppers would turn into long distance hikers. Yeah, I mean, totally. you're so used to like being in the element, getting by yeah. on very little. Yep, totally, oh. totally. Yeah. Oh, so, so let me tell people a little bit more formally who she is, besides a punk. Kara Quinn is a queer writer, photographer, and long distance hiker. She's the author of the book, Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. And this summer, she and a friend will be hiking across Alaska via the Arctic to raise awareness around current threats to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, as well as money and support for the indigenous groups there that are fighting to protect their sacred homelands. We talk about that at length in the interview, and we'll definitely make sure you have links to uh, support and donate to her fundraiser if you want to. So, Melody, will you take us there? Where are you right now, Carrot? Okay. Uh, so I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I am staying at a friend's place, and I just went on a run in Forest Park with my dogs, and it was beautiful, and I'm getting ready for this long hike across Alaska. I fly to Alaska in a month, and uh, today I'm going to go to the coast with my date and spend the night out there in my really old camper van with her, and it's going to be beautiful. Yeah, I'm a writer. I am working on my second book right now and I do some journalism stuff. I also live in southern Arizona and I've done some humanitarian aid stuff there and stuff around the border a little bit and then right now I'm really interested in how Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska was just open for drilling last fall as a writer on this tax bill and it's one of the last wildernesses left in the world. And it's also really, really, really sacred to the Gwich'in people. Their entire culture, world, everything is based around this area and the caribou there. And they've been fighting to protect it for decades. And they've been living there for 40,000 years. And they've been, like, really key in the fight. So I'm going to do this hike in Alaska. And as so I blog. Um, every time I do a long-distance hike, I've hiked 9,000 miles in the past five years. I've walked across the lower 48 three times and done some other things. And every time I I do one of these long hikes, I write a blog post every day. So I have all these people who read my blog posts because people love blogs about long distance hiking. I love blogs about long distance hiking. It's like this nice escape for people because so many people can't, you know, do that sort of thing. I'm not going to be able to do it forever. It's so fun to read about about it when you can't get out there. And so I'm going to use my blog to try and like recenter the conversation on you know outdoor adventure a little bit towards the people who are most affected by these issues which are not like white backpackers yeah a lot of really fucking cool shit and i wish we had a million hours to talk to you because i would love to hear more (laughs) about your work on the border and all the things but we are going to jump in and definitely dig in more to questions about hiking and a little bit later about writing so can you start by telling us how you first got involved with long distance hiking and yes. you sort of define what that means exactly. Yes. So there, long distance hiking, there are these long trails, they call them, in the U.S. and some other countries too. But the amazing thing is the U.S. has the best long trails in the world. It's really cool. There's a lot of terrible shit here. But somehow it worked out that we spent all of this money and built all the infrastructure to build these really long trails that are like immaculately maintained, which is You do not see that really anywhere else in the world. And so we have these long trails that take like anywhere from, you know, a couple weeks to five months to complete. So long distance hiking is just the idea of doing these trails in one go. So, so most backpackers, you know, you go out for a weekend or you go out for a few days, maybe four or five days. Long distance hiking is the idea to go out for just like a longer period of time. So there are there are all these long trails and there are all these websites that collect all this information about all the long trails. And you can sort of like pick them depending on how much time you have, um, how hard you want it to be, how far you want to hike every day, like the weather, the season, the elevation, all these different things. So there's something for everyone and it's really cool. It's super cool. I mean, it's just a vacation. It's a vacation from reality. Like if you're able-bodied enough to do it, which is an incredible privilege, it's super hard on your body. So that's real. That's totally real. It's like, massive to have massive able-bodied ability but if you can go out 
such indulgent, wonderful, pleasurable way to just like check out from everything for a few weeks. So it's a vacation, basically, is what it is. And then the other aspect of it for me is that I feel like I have this very spiritual connection to nature. And so it's a, it's like an opportunity for me to just like be in nature, like sleeping on nature every night, walking around in nature all day for a while. And I feel like that's something that I want everyone to have access to because I feel like as humans, we are dependent on nature to survive. And without nature, if nature dies, we die too. And we do have a really deep spiritual, like basic connection with it that I think a lot of people don't have access to. And our culture is very urban and there's so much privilege involved with even being able to get out there. And, um, yeah, I want, I, I want that for so many more people to be able to go out and do that. And you don't have to long distance hike to do that at all. There's so many ways to get out into nature that are like way more accessible. And I got into long distance hiking specifically because I've been backpacking a few times. I've been on like three, four day trips <clears throat> and I was always having fun, but I was in a lot of pain. Um, so I, I was wearing leather boots and my feet really hurt and my pack was heavy and my shoulders hurt. And I was like, oh, this is fun and it's beautiful, but uh, it's excruciating. <clears throat> and then I, I was just like nerding out on the internet and I happened upon ultralight backpacking, which is the idea. It's sort of like a game. It's like you want to go out, say you're going on like a four day trip. You look at the weather, you look at where you're camping, you look at sort of the conditions and you want to be really comfortable, really safe from all the elements and really well fed. And at the same time, get your pack weight as low as possible. And there's all these people who nerd out about it online. It gets like super nerdy. <laughs> people get like grand scales and they're like cutting bits off of all their gear and they cut the handles off their toothbrushes and all this stuff. <laughs> and it can get a, it can get super broy too, which is really funny because to me, what it did to me is it made long distance accessible because I can't carry a heavy pack for very long. It just hurts my body too much. And that's true for most people. And it's not even about strength. Like you can be like an ex-military dude who can like kill a boar with a knife, you know, whatever, who owns a CrossFit gym. But long distance hiking, when you're out there for day after day after day, it, it's just like it's a lot of overuse on your tendons, ligaments and joints, which affects everyone, no matter how strong you are, no matter how big your muscles are, no matter how hard you train, everyone feels that. And so... Mm that's that's exponentially increased if your pack is heavy. So if your pack is really light, so it makes long distance hiking accessible. So that's what it did for me. So I just so I, I got super into it. I like nerded out really hard. Um, I got this book called Ultralight Backpacking Tips by Mike Cleland, which is really good. It has comics in it and all these funny illustrations. And he tells you so you so one way to do it is you can buy really expensive gear from these little cottage companies that are like a couple sewing stuff in their basement and it's super expensive or you can take the gear you ha already have and alter it yourself and there's also all these patterns online to make gear yourself from scratch with a sewing machine and a lot of people do that it's called myog make your own gear and there's like all these nerdy websites so I just took the gear I already had and like altered it. And then I talked to my friend Finn and I was like, we're because we were going to go on this four day trip. And I was like, we're going to go on this four day trip and we're going to be ultralight. And he was like, OK. And so we just wore trail runners because you don't need boots if your pack's not really heavy. You can just wear running shoes and then your feet are really comfortable and you don't have blisters and your feet aren't in pain. And then we had really light packs. I just like altered everything I had. And we went on this four day backpacking trip and it was like heaven. It was just, it just felt like I was day hiking. Like that's how heavy my pack felt. I was like blissed out the whole time. And I was like, this makes me love backpacking so much. Like the fact that I'm not in pain. So mm. then I got really obsessed with the idea of doing it for longer. So I started learning about the PCT and I had a friend who'd hiked the PCT and the the PC, the Pacific Crest Trail, the thing is you only have a five-month weather window. And so you have to average 18 miles a day to finish before it starts snowing. And that includes all your days off and your half days going into town and things like that. And to go that fast without injury, you have to have a light pack no matter who you are, no matter how strong you are because of the overuse on your joints. And so the PCT became accessible for me once I learned about ultralight backpacking. And then I got really obsessed and planned for a year and then I hiked the PCT and then I was hooked. Amazing. Thank you for sharing all that. <laughs> yeah. um, just a, a quick follow-up question. So you mentioned a few times uh, the concept of accessibility that 
hiking is not necessarily always accessible to people. And I talk about that a lot with biking as well. But when we think about it, both walking and biking, there's nothing inherently unaccessible about it. I think it's just the way that it gets practiced. So I heard you like talk about accessibility in your body wise, pain wise, but what other things make hiking inaccessible? Because isn't it just, isn't it just walking? Like can't anybody walk? So what makes it inaccessible for people? So hiking itself is super accessible. So if you're going on a day hike or if you're going on a few day trip where you can take it super easy, I feel like that's accessible for a lot of people, which is really, really, really awesome. But long distance hikes, so these long trails, a lot of them have specific weather windows. And so in order to do the whole thing in one go, which is what people call long distance hiking, you usually have to average a certain number of miles per day. And that's where... Mm It it. becomes inaccessible for a lot of people. Like a lot of people have like a bad knee or a bad ankle or they get altitude sickness and that becomes inaccessible. You really have to, you know, all the stars really have to align. And there's a lot of people who set out to do these trails who are in perfect health. It's a real challenge on your body, I guess. Like it's a real test of like what the human body can do. And as humans, as far as animals go, we are better at long distance walking than any other animal. Like we are wow. so good at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I always thought of us as these like really weak, soft animals. Yeah. But no one like, so to through hike the Pacific Crest Trail, you have to do it in five months. No animal can do that. Dogs can't do it. Wow. It's a, a horse has only done it a couple of times. And to do it with a horse, you have to do all this crazy stuff, like flip around and do different sections at different times. Like, but humans can do it because- we're just really good at long distance walking. <laughs> okay, but what wow. about cats? Can cats do it? <laughs> you you know, there I, I one year there was a woman who found a kitten and she was hiking with the kitten and I think she was carrying it. So also obviously to take five months means that you would possibly have a job and or the financial resources to be able to fund this. So is that something that sometimes you think could be a deterrent for people too, is the financial aspect? Yes, yes. It's insane. It's so the two biggest demographics you see on a five month trail, like the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail are people just out of college and retired folks, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. those are the two groups of people who can swing it the easiest. And within that, it's white people with money, like Mm -hmm. white, white men just out of college (laughs) and retired white people with money and the young. So like the 20 year old white bros, they don't have a lot of money, but they're young. So they can sort of get by just eating like ramen and candy. And that's how they do it for cheap. And then the retired folks are people with money. They're like retired white folks with money whose kids are grown. So it's yeah, it's insanely inaccessible as far as like, if you have a full time job, there are so that I, I do know a lot of people who are really obsessed with long distance hiking who have you know, real careers, but they chose one specifically because it gives them several months a year off like um, mm-hmm. travel nursing or teaching or like different sorts of jobs, like maybe engineering, if you like different sorts of jobs, so you can get a job that it's like one thing, and it lasts like two years, and you're done. Right. And then you take and take a year off to hike, and then you get another job, but you can still sort of build a career. So people find ways to do it. But it's insane. So the trails that are a lot shorter than five months are a lot more accessible as far as that goes. And there's a lot of those too. So that's really cool. Like there's some really great like, two week and one month trails that you really get out there. So since you brought up our favorite discussion topic, racism, mentioned a lot of the white dudes. So can you talk, I can't wait for this answer, I'll listen all day, how you've dealt with, I'm going to guess, a lot of sexism on the trails and also how you see that racism play out in long distance trail hiking. I mean, there's so much to say because there's the long distance hiking community is is sort of microcosm of the outdoors community in general. And I see really similar themes through the whole outdoors community. And what's interesting is Right now, people are starting to talk about it a ton, and it's so amazing. So my theory about what sort of created the framework of the long-distance hiking community, sort of the status quo, is that a lot of the trails, a lot of the trail organizations, and a lot of the infrastructure is sort of supported and run and coordinated by white, conservative, Christian, aging baby boomers. Huh. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. yeah. So the, so like when you, so if you go on the PCT, for example, there's, it's not super diverse, but you will meet a lot of different kinds of people. But when you look at who sort of creates the container of the trails community, like who has the money and the funding and the organizations and like 
all these things. It's definitely the like aging white conservative Christian baby boomers. So that definitely informs the sort of heart of it. And that, and that, and that is my theory is that what's, and also the history of like who uses the outdoors, who recreates in the outdoors, right? It's like white Mm -hmm. people with money. Mm -hmm. And then all these other stories of like, you know, whose land, whose indigenous land was it originally, Mm -hmm. you know, who built the trails, like who was displaced, who Mm -hmm. doesn't have access to like these clean air and clean water, all that is erased. It's invisible. And you go out on trail and people are like, I come here because it's apolitical. I don't want to talk about politics. This is my escape. And you're like, you're a fucking white, straight white girl. Like you have to escape escape from. And they're like, shut up. This is, I feel so seen. This is my community. And it's, if you look, so there are all these Facebook pages for the different trails and some of them, it's the different, it's each year. So like there's a PCT class of 2018 trail and Appalachian or Facebook page. There's like an Appalachian trail class of whatever Facebook page. And they're super, super active. They have thousands of people in them. And the environment is just awful. It's awful on those Facebook pages. And that, I feel like, is a really good representation of, like, what people come up again and try to introduce um, intersectionality into the community. Or if you want to have a voice and you're a person of color or a queer person or a fat person, oh, my God, the, like, fat phobia uh, is, like, insane mm-hmm. because it's so ableist, because it's, like, all about, like, mm-hmm. these physical feats. Even though people are just having a vacation, you know, they think they're mm-hmm. heroes because they're doing these long hikes. And um, there's, yeah, there's zero intersectionality in, like, the sort of core. So the mm-hmm. core, it's, like, zero intersectionality. Everything's apolitical. If you want to talk about politics, go fuck yourself. Like, mm-hmm. shut up, get the fuck out. And but that's the core. So that's the core. It's fucking gross. It's a dumpster fire. It's. I think about it all the time. And I see that in other peripherally. What I've seen of other outdoors communities, I think it's similar. Like the climbing community, rafting. Mm-hmm. This, oh my god, you know, everything. Like yeah, biking. Like you could just be talking about biking, right? Like replace it with some other sport or activity. Yeah. That's how yeah. pervasive male whiteness is and it's like this intense it's like focus on the positive but what they Mm -hmm. mean is i don't want to talk about anything that doesn't affect me personally get out right Mm -hmm. and the wilderness is apolitical you know even though the wilderness is probably one of the most political things you can imagine Mm -hmm. but so that's the core (laughs) but on the fringe especially right now and makes me so feel so good. And I'm sure it feels even better for people who are more affected by it. Cause I have tons of privilege. So. But if you're like fat or person of color, whatever, I'm sure it feels even more exciting. There are all these like Instagram accounts and organizations and websites and things that are like actually starting to have the really, really important conversations being like, no, fuck you. Like we're changing the narrative. We're centering ourselves. We're talking about our relationship to the outdoors. We're talking about indigenous people and stolen lands and we're talking about fat phobia and we're talking about everything i'm not sure what's gonna happen i'm like i don't know if the baby boomers are just gonna age out like i'm not trying to be a hater of baby boomers but it looks <laughs> like makes me a hater of baby boomers. <laughs> um i don't know but there's definitely it's sort of i feel like it's one of those like when you see from the sky like a river meeting the ocean and it's like the water the two different colors of the water and they're like swirling together and it's like oil and and you're like, what? I don't know. It feels, it's like oil and water a little bit. And I don't know how it's going to play out, but it's a really interesting time to be part of it. <laughs> the image of oil, oil and water drive the sort of tensions of our battles is like so much lovelier than I feel like it actually is. But I like that. And I think we should stick with that. That's nice. It's like um, cognitive dissonance. It's like yeah. so much cognitive dissonance. It like makes me dizzy. Yeah. Like I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, Killjoys, just wanted to take a break from our amazing interview with Carrot to tell you about some stuff on the internet. So if you're loving this episode and you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do so. You can find us on your favorite podcast application. Make sure to leave us a review on iTunes as well, because it really helps spread the word about our awesome podcast. On the social media tip, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, we have our regular page that you can like and get episode updates, or you can join our closed community group. Just search for Feminist Killjoys Community WTF Power exclamation point. On Spotify, we have a mixtape called the Feminist Killjoys PhD mixtape curated by Rachel. 
Uh, it's a lot of our outro songs that we use on the show. And uh, very importantly, if you have some extra dollars and want to support us feminist media makers, you can donate on our Patreon site. Or you can go and be a one-time donator to PayPal. Um, We actually are not suggesting that you become a monthly donator via PayPal because you don't get the access that you would on Patreon. So just pick your poison, one-time donation, PayPal, uh, monthly donation on Patreon. And if you become a monthly contributor with our Patreon page, you get access to our Killjoy review newsletter that Rachel puts together every week with I sometimes collaborate on when I'm up for it. But hey, it's summer, so I'm going to have some time. And if you donate $5 a month or more, you get access to our bonus episodes. The latest one that we recorded was about Mr. Rogers and how awesome he is. So get on that. Oh, and also you get stickers. Donators get stickers. I'm putting some in the mail very soon. If you want to contact us any other way, the best way is email fkj.phd at gmail.com. And then Melody's favorite way is if you want to call me, 414-858-7818. I just did that from memory. That's amazing. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, call me. Leave me a voicemail. Send me a letter. Off air, I mentioned to Carrot that I was reading this book that I think I've told listeners that I was reading um, as well called White Spaces, Black Faces by Carolyn Finney, who is a professor. And she, in her book, she talks a lot about how the history of African Americans intersects with their connections to the outdoors. And so a really clear example of this is how going into the forest uh, and trees specifically can elicit a lot of fear and anxiety with African Americans because it was in the wilderness spaces and it was in quote unquote nature, you know, not the urban space where, where all of the violence and killings of African Americans occurred. So lynchings, for example, happened in, on, in trees, right? And so when particular people see trees, they don't see beautiful peacefulness, they see their ancestors being killed, right? And so I think um, indigenous people have a very interesting, obviously, a very rich and painful history with nature. Um, and then in reading this book, it really opened my eyes to kind of seeing like why African Americans don't intersect with nature as much as the white people would like them to, because there's some white people that are like, how come more people, how come more black people aren't skiing or hiking or, you know, insert outdoor activity. But then when you start thinking about the historical context of nature or outdoors with particular cultures, that's where, you know, history is really important to understand. It's a similar thing that I talk about with bicycling as well. But Carrot, just as a, as a follow-up question, like in me explaining some of that. How do you, how are you seeing that? I, I'm sure you could say something about the indigenous um, work that you're getting involved in. I'm just and, curious I mean, your response. Your border work, just like traveling in nature on the border is very different. Yeah. Than vacationing oh, yes. on a hike. Yes. Oh yeah. 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 I could talk about that. So I, um, I like snowbird in Tucson. There's so many people down there who are so much more involved I have been, but the bit I have been involved, it's like you could, yeah, you could have a whole podcast just about the complexities of wilderness areas along the border where mm. there's massive infrastructure to protect endangered pronghorn down to the like speed limit signs on these Jeep roads in case there's a pronghorn and the ground is covered in human skulls and oh. nobody cares. Wow. Which is Cabeza Prieta. Um, wildlife refuge so that's a whole other story wow <laughs> yeah that's like that's if you want to talk about yeah wilderness areas and white privilege and um that sort of thing it's like that's insane that's like really insane down there but and that's yeah. from so that's, i'm sorry is that from people trying to cross the border yes yeah, the place i spent the, spent the most time was around ajo arizona and specifically this area called cabeza prieta this wilderness area that's a wildlife refuge and a ton of people cross there it's not too far north of the border, and but it's one of the most brutal areas in southern Arizona where people cross. Mm-hmm. And the way the uh, border has been militarized funnels people to the harshest desert. It's called them through deterrence. And the Ugh. idea is that, oh, if people think they're going to die, they won't cross. But people are forced to cross because of really intense things going on in yeah. other parts of the world. And, right. you know, different like NAFTA and ways we've affected, you know, done exactly. things in Mexico. So people are going to cross anyway. So what it means is thousands and thousands and thousands of people have died since like 1995. 
crossing. And this area in particular is one of the most brutal, brutal stretches and it's the most difficult to do humanitarian aid. And it's the area where one of the areas where humanitarian aid is most criminalized. So my friend Scott Warren is facing multiple felony charges. His trial is going on right now. He was arrested in that area. Um, and a bunch of other volunteers I know were arrested for doing humanitarian aid. Mm. And it's where definitely where the most people are dying. And we, yeah, we found like just people doing humanitarian aid in the desert there find like, you know, a dozen sets of human remains a month and nobody is recovering them. Nobody's looking for them. Like you have to like find them and you have to get, make all these waypoints and you have to call the sheriff and you have to sort of pressure the sheriff and there's all these missing persons cases. So that's really interesting. And in this area, which is like this really special thing, you know, in the minds of white outdoors people. And yeah, so it's, but, and then when you think about when a hiker goes missing somewhere else in the U S and then they find some remains, it's like this national news story. And it's like, Oh my God, this person who disappeared for years while hiking in Maine, like her remains were finally found next to this boulder. And it's like on the news everywhere. Right. And there are these people hiking for days in the desert. Anyway. Yeah. That's like a whole other podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That's super dark. But yeah, interesting, Mel, that you're, we'll put, Melody, we'll put the name of the book that you're reading as well. Interesting things to think about for sure. And along a bit of the same lines, um, I do want to shift to Alaska. So that's where you're headed next. And part of your hike is, a component of your hike is that you're fundraising simultaneously for Defend the Sacred, which is a native-led coalition of organizations seeking to protect land in Alaska that is under threat of development. Um, so you spoke to that a little bit earlier, but can you expand on that? And I have some follow-up questions about that too, but can you start there, sort of expand on why this is important? Yeah. So, um, I was born and raised in Alaska in Anchorage and I feel, I really care. I really care about Alaska and the wilderness there. And it's one of, Alaska has some of the most, yeah, intact wildernesses left earth. And Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in particular is this little piece of the coastal plain in northern Alaska on the coast there. And it's where the porcupine caribou herd, which numbers around 200,000, migrates to have their calves every year. And the porcupine caribou, caribou are like plagued by parasites. Insane. Like it is insane. They have this one fly that crawls up their nostrils and shoots eggs into their throat. And then the eggs grow into larvae and then the caribou horks up the larvae, continue their life cycle like on the ground. There's another fly that burrows, that injects eggs into the caribou's leg. And then those larvae travel up the subcutaneous tissue all the way to their spine and grow into these fat little larvae and then eventually burrow out and leap to the ground. And then there are the mosquitoes that are so strong it's like almost like suffocation level strong for these caribou. So their lives are not easy. They're just like fucking twitching all day, like trying to get away from these parasites. So when they have their calves, they migrate all the way to the coastal plain because it's really breezy there and there are less parasites. So they can Mm. have calves and have like a little bit of peace and rest and their calves will survive if they can Mm. get away from the parasites. And there are a few predators up there too. So the calves have a better rate of survival. And then once the calves, um, I don't know how much time they spend up there, but they spend a little time up there after they calve and then they migrate back to where they spend the rest of the year. And so it's really sacred for that reason. Also the Gwich'in people who've lived there for 40,000 years, their entire culture developed around the caribou, like the places where they settled and had to do with like the migratory routes of the caribou. And it's like there, it continues to be, um, they live a subs- they still live a subsistence lifestyle in Alaska where almost all their food comes from hunting and fishing. And so the caribou have always been and continue to be like a huge food source for them. And they and their spirituality is like really, really, really tied up to in the caribou. They say like whatever happens to the like if the caribou die, they die. Whatever happens to the caribou happens to them. And they call this their calving grounds, they call it the sacred place where life begins. And for the past I think in the past like 20 or 30 years, there have been 50 attempts to open Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to drilling, to oil drilling. And according to the USGS, um, the amount of oil there is the amount it takes to power the U.S. for about a year. 
So it would be about a year's worth of oil for the U.S. and it would destroy this incredible wilderness. And it and it's not just special because of the caribou. Like everything is intact there. There are zero roads. There have never been roads. Mm. There's never been any development at all. There's only one real road going through northern Alaska. You know, it's never been logged. It's never been mined. It's really special there. Like all of the original species are intact. There's tons of grizzlies. Wow. There's muskox. There's salmon. Like tons of salmon. There's like tons of wolves there's wolverines just everything it's really wild and beautiful and yeah for the past 20 or 30 years the Gwich'in people have been really involved in legislation and all this fighting to protect Anwar and keep it from being open for drilling and they've been successful and then last fall there was a tax right there was a writer on the tax bill that Trump passed that opened Anwar for drilling and it went through and it was signed mm-hmm. into law and so now there's all this like fast track stuff going on around like yeah like who's going to drill there and when and whatnot so yeah different people are sort of coming together around that and defend this so what i did is i was like i'm gonna raise money and so i talked to a couple different people who are involved in a few different organizations in alaska and they were like defend the sacred ak is they're like this is the one that could use support and what they do that's interesting is it's like people from a lot of different groups and the organization specifically works to defend sacred lands in Alaska that are under threat of like really advised development for resource extraction, mining, other things. And in particular, ANWR, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So it's a really cool organization. It's like a newer organization. And yeah, I just, you know, I'm like, I'm, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm no expert. Like I'm not, I don't do like a ton of activism, but it's like, I feel like in the outdoors community, sometimes and in long distance hiking, sometimes people are like, oh, I'm going to like do something outside of just have a nice vacation, try to use my hike for good. Basically, I was like, I'm just going to ask people what they want. And then I'm going to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we need money. The organization needs money. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, instead of being like, oh, I'm going to do this thing that no one asked me to do. Right. But that um, I'm a white person. I'm going to go in and do this thing that no one asked me to do, you know? Right. Totally. Um, I, and, and organizations need money. Like white communities have access to so many more resources than communities mm-hmm. of color. And white people have white networks with access to more money. And so like as a long distance hiker who's white, who has like an online platform, like the people who follow me, their networks, like they're more likely to have access to more resources. And then these indigenous communities have a much harder, like if you're an organization and you're not white, you have a much harder time fundraising mm-hmm. and it's a lot harder to get resources. <laughs> so I feel like, yeah, if I can just like shift resources, <laughs> use like my online platform platform to shift resources to this organization, it felt, that felt good. And like I was doing something that was useful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I think that is such an important lesson for activists, people who want to be engaged in good solidarity. I mean, you're describing solidarity, which is, you know, being aligned with people's struggle instead of, you know, charity, right? Like projecting things onto people. And so that's amazing. And my follow-up question was this like idea, is it possible to like decolonize hiking? And you mentioned before, like, finally people talking about being on stolen land. And I think you're speaking to it, you know, you're, you're speaking to this process of, first of all, naming that, that it, that, you know, we're all on stolen land if we're not native. And second, um, thinking about how to, you know, reparations, basically, like, how do we give back in that? And this is also helpful for me. I'm really grateful that I, I know about you and this fundraiser because my mom's lifelong bucket list item has been to go to Alaska, like her whole life. And she, lives below the poverty line and doesn't ever get to do nice stuff. So for her 60th birthday, I'm taking her to Alaska and that's in two weeks. So um, I've been, yeah. And we're like doing it like the super like bougie white people way. We're going on a cruise because that's what people say to do. So I've been thinking, but as soon as, as I decided that I wanted to take her there, I, um, I had some feelings about it because I knew that it would mean like sort of occupying these spaces that, especially like on a cruise ship. So I'm feeling a lot of feelings about it, but I'm glad I can at least give money to your fundraiser. So, so thanks for doing that, that legwork literally. But uh, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say to that before we move on, but I really appreciate your earnest reflection on that. I think that's awesome that your mom 
it's been on her bucket list to go to Alaska and she's going to go on a cruise. I feel like maybe it's a bougie white people thing to go on a cruise, but also like if you're 60 and you think a cruise is the most fun thing to do, I'm like, just go on a fucking cruise. Like, yeah, that's how I feel. And I'm glad she's going to get to be able to do it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, especially like as far as like accessibility goes, it's like some people like a cruise is the thing that, you yeah. know, yeah. it doesn't, it it's like comfortable and accessible to them so they can exactly. have like everything they need. So. Exactly. And she, <laughs> she, she is disabled. So that's, it's going to be great for her. So yeah. yeah. Yep. And it's going to be so beautiful. Oh man. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I would also like to say, Carrot, do you know that there's a caribou coffee brand here in the Midwest? I don't know. Uh, you would know if you so. did. So in the Midwest there, instead of, well, we have Starbucks, but we also have caribou coffee and they have this, they have the caribou as their mascot or whatever their brand. And now it makes me really mad because I did not know. So thank you for educating me on the caribou. And I highly doubt that anybody who works there or I shouldn't say that I highly doubt that anybody who is like the owners of caribou knew about that. And I'm feeling like a lot of cultural appropriation coming from this coffee chain now. And so I promise you that I will educate my students who all love caribou. I will kill joy their their morning coffees only because that's what I do in my class in general because I teach media. Uh, so I'm always killjoying their favorite show or whatever. But thank you very much for that education because I, I did not know that. And and I will pass it along in the Midwest where everybody gets their caribou coffee. I wonder, I wonder what the history of that is. Like if the people who started that chain are like from somewhere where there were caribou or, cause I know there's a caribou coffee in Alaska. Mm. Um, they do have like photographs, I think of Alaska on their walls. Oh, if I remember like correctly. Yeah, yeah, but anyway. I could I could open up Oaxaca Coffee and have pictures of Oaxaca on my walls. And no, you <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? It's true. <laughs> so it's true. it definitely yeah. was it yeah. started in Minnesota. So it didn't start in Alaska, that's for sure. Yeah. Um yeah. it's also owned by a German holding company, so we're gonna go with no on the Alaska oh. connection. <laughs> uh John Puckett owns it. That sounds I don't he was working as <laughs> yeah, management consultant for a Boston based firm, Bain and Company. I'm not seeing any Okay. Nope. <laughs> General Motors. This is a very bad Any company. Connection. Okay, well, yeah. enjoy your caribou, listeners. Hope you like it. <laughs> I can't Maybe wait. they should start donating a percentage of all their cells to That'd like the amazing. protection of Anwar. Right? I'm going to get yeah, on that. I'm going to email them. I'm going to tell when I go into caribou, they'll be like, did you know that the caribou is a, <laughs> it is a sacred being? And if there is no caribou, there is no people. <laughs> and then they'll just look at me. It's going to be amazing. Thank you and, so much for that. And as as an aside, there are there are a lot of other different native groups in Alaska too, besides the Gwich'in, and there are other native groups that live in the Arctic and have relationships with the caribou. But I focus I focus specifically on Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the Gwich'in's relationship with the caribou there. Mm-hmm. So I don't actually know enough about the other groups to speak to it, but. Yeah, just to add that, it's definitely not like just the Gwich'in. But they're, as far as I Thank know, the you. people who have been most active in protecting Anwar. Definitely. Okay. So the, and they're the people that I'm working with. But yeah, just for the record, <laughs> there, there are a lot of other groups in Alaska too. And um, they probably have their own relationships with caribou and other animals and stuff. <laughs> this is definitely now, what is the the tourism thing? Like, not disaster tourism, but like when you go to... Yeah. Um, what is the what name is of that? What is it called? Um uh like white people tourism like, uh yeah. the um the ugly tourist the ugly tourist yeah no thing. i know but there's another name for it too anyway go ahead well anyways bad tourism when you're just exploiting and taking up space and guess how they got the idea for the coffee shop oh oh they went on a tour they went to alaska to visit as tourists and oh. came back and now they're prof and now they're profiting off of the sacred animal. This is a really bad company. I just started looking them. I just started doing some research. <laughs> Caribou is not a good company, you guys. Like, there's General oh, Motors no. involved. There's like, there was some shady. It's like all about investing. It's all like in, they're investors. They're not actually That's like, like down home. But yeah, I know. But sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. well, good to know. Hot takes here on FKJ. Don't go to Caribou. Oh, I can't wait to tell my students. Be so good. <laughs> I love educating them about things that they should know. So I'm excited. Okay, moving on. If I may backtrack a little bit. So you're hiking. So I'm definitely inspired by you. If people like me and other listeners were like, I'm gonna, I want to get into this. Like, how do you get into long distance hiking besides just having like a badass mentality? The cool thing is that. 
there's so much information on the internet these days. So I would definitely pick up the book Ultralight Backpacking Tips by Mike Cleland because I, for me, that made it way more accessible for me when my pack wasn't, when I wasn't in physical pain anymore. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I can do this. And then there's websites that just have all the different trails and tell you so much information about them. So you can, you know, figure out how much time you have off, how much time you can get off, like what your budget is, like where you can travel to that sort of thing. And then there are tons and tons and tons of Facebook groups for all these different trails for better or worse. And you can get really good help from other people in these Facebook groups. So, uh, this first time dating, she wants to hike the Colorado trail this summer, which will be her first long distance hike. And I think it's like 500 miles or something. And so she got, and she's taking about a month to hike it, I think. And she got on the Facebook page for the Colorado trail. And so people are all People are like asking questions and giving each other advice. Like people be like, oh, where are you? Because you stop every, you know, four or five days to go into town and get more food when you're on these trails okay. and like do your laundry and charge stuff and maybe take a day off in the motel. And so people are like, oh, well, what towns are you going in to resupply? Or when are you starting? Or what do you do about thunderstorms? Or how many miles do you walk a day? Or what backpack are you carrying? Or, you know, do, do you feel safe being a woman alone? Or what about hitchhiking? So there's tons of forums. So if you think it's something you want to do, just start doing some Googling and reading about ultralight backpacking. And then there's also a lot of blogs. So any trail you want to hike, you can probably find a blog of someone who hiked it and wrote a blog post every day and took pictures. So that's a really good way to get a feel for like trails. And there's a lot of women who, who blog. And so if you want to read something written by a woman or a person of color or any marginalized community, you can find that. And, um, get like that perspective. And there's also a lot of YouTube channels of people who hike and vlog while they're hiking. So you can get a lot of, learn a lot about a trail that way. Like what the weather might be like, you know, what a day looks like, that sort of thing. So those are really good places to start. As a follow-up comment, I was reading your book and getting your backstory on like why you started hiking. And one of the things for listeners here, that you were really afraid that you were getting sucked into the internet too much. And I love that the internet has been so pivotal pivotal for you and like gaining more information about backpacking. And I think it's a good reminder to people that like the internet can be really bad, but if you use it in the right way, it can be really great and empowering and open up the world for you. Yeah, I still get spend way too much time looking at screens and I'm not long distance hiking, which I feel like is why I keep wanting to long distance hike because I have, I feel like a lot of my friends my age have found ways to set boundaries with their screens, like with their phone and the internet. Like, Oh, I don't look at my phone on, I don't look at the internet on the weekends or I don't look at social media on the weekends or I don't like look Mm -hmm. at my phone before 10 AM or I don't look at my phone after 9 PM. And I have never been able to set any boundaries. Like I've tried and tried. And so it just ends up like creeping in like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just get like into it. I don't know. I just love it. And then when I long distance hike, I have no choice. I'm just completely cut off. So it like, Mm -hmm. it sort of like cleanses me of my, my my, like addiction. And then I go back into town and I'm like, I don't remember why I looked at Instagram so much. And then slowly start to remember. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's nice that it can provide that refuge when, when you're able to, to be out there. Um, speaking of your book though, last question. It's great. Your book is great. Your book is so cool. I love your book. I really, I really like it. Also the cover is really amazing. Who's the artist who did the cover? Um, Alejandra Wilson. And I think in the inside cover, it has her email address. Cool. Okay. Um, She's a long distance hiker and she's, she's writing a graphic novel about her long distance hike. Awesome. And I think she's putting it up page by page on her website as she finishes it. And it's really cool. So you can look at it. We will include her in our, in our notes, show notes and um, in the newsletter as well. So real quick or not real quick, whatever you want. (laughs) um, Can you just talk to us about sort of your process in writing it? This is a little bit of a selfish question because I'm a writer also. Um, I mean, Melody is too. Um, I'm just being selfish because I'm interested in creative nonfiction and sort of the way that Mm -hmm. you're writing. So can you talk about, um, I'm interested in your process in terms of were you actually writing it like in a journal as you hiked? Did you take draw from notes and just write it when you got back? How long did it take? All of the sort of process, writing process questions. Well, I started. So before I, I hiked the PCT, I was reading a lot of trail blogs. And I was like, these I, I was like, I love reading these. I'm going to do this while I'm hiking. And I'd been blogging already for like five years, but not every day. And then um, 
I was like, I'm going to blog every day on trail. So I did that. And it was really hard because each post took me about two hours to write. And I was exhausted at the end of the day. So I just had the WordPress app on my phone. And I would write the blog post on my phone. And then if I didn't have service, WordPress will just save it to your phone. And then when you have service, you can upload it. But then I was falling behind on my blog because it was getting harder and harder to carve out that time. And so then about halfway through the trail, a little more than halfway, like two thirds of the way through, I started just taking notes every day. And then once I finished the trail, I sat down and I wrote all of those final posts. And then those, so that was like 153, I don't remember, um, blog posts from the trail. The first time I hiked the PCT, that became, then I was like, that was like, I think it was almost 200,000 words. Mm. And it's really interesting because I've always been a writer and I feel like, you know, you read so much stuff about how to get yourself to write to just produce like word count, sort of like sheer Mm -hmm. quantity, you know, like when you're trying to write the rough draft to a book or the first or you're trying to write the first draft to a book or whatever, you know, you're just supposed to churn it out. People are like, Oh, get up early, write a 1000 words a day, carve out this time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hiking 10 hours a day, exhausted, just typing in my phone in my sleeping bag, my fingers were like numb. And I wrote 200,000 words in five months on my wow. And I mean, the the, the last third I wrote afterwards, but, but it's, I realized it's because I wasn't thinking about it that way. Mm, I wasn't thinking about it. And it's the same with long distance hiking. Like when you set out to walk, say from Mexico to Canada on the PCT, you don't get up every day and say, I'm going to walk from from Mexico to Canada. You just say, I'm going to walk three miles and to the water to the next spring. And then I'll probably drink some water and maybe eat a second breakfast, then I'm going to walk five more miles, then I'll eat lunch, then I'll walk like five more miles, then I'll take a nap. And you don't think about it. You don't think about what you're doing. And that's what makes it not overwhelming. And somehow just by being like, I'm going to type a blog post in my sleeping bag on my phone every night, I tricked myself into writing 200,000 words. Yeah, which like still blows my mind, because I haven't been able to replicate it. (laughs) Like, I haven't been able to. So right now I'm working on my second book. And I'm like 70% done with the first draft and I'm just stuck because I cannot get myself to work on it. And so A, so I was writing those blog posts from the trail, which tricked me into think also, you know, a blog, nobody cares how good it is. So it, mm. my perfectionist was just absent. I wasn't like, yep. oh, I have to write something good, which is paralyzing. Whenever yep. I feel that way, I'm completely paralyzed. I was just like, oh, I'll just write whatever. It's just a blog. So then, of course, it was just as good as anything else I ever wrote. You know, it wasn't bad, but it made it easier to write because I was mm-hmm. like, it's a blog. Who's ca- who cares? And then I had uh, the first draft to a book and I had so many extra words that I had a ton to work with. You know, I could cut all this stuff out. So then the other thing that helped is I did a Kickstarter before I hiked the PCT because I needed money for gear. And I was like, the Kickstarter was for the book, which hadn't been written yet. And I was like, I'm going to raise money for this Kickstarter and it's going to allow me to hike the PCT. And then all the rewards are going to be copies of my book, which means Mm -hmm. I have to finish it. Mm-hmm. So then I finished the PCT and I was like, oh shit, I have to write this. And <laughs> it put this, like, it lit this fire under my ass because there was this threat of public humiliation if I failed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I'd done a Kickstarter, it was like, wow, if I don't finish this book and publish it, like, I'm going to be publicly humiliated permanently, you know, because this Kickstarter, yeah. you know, low right. key. But, right. and so that, like, I mean, it was stressful, but I was like, fuck, fuck. And so then I ended up publishing it a year late. Cause of course it, it took me two years from when I started writing those blog posts on the PCT to when it came out. And to be honest, I feel like if I'd spent another year, it would have been a little like better edited and had some things going on. But, um, but that's what allowed me to finish it was knowing that I was late on a Kickstarter. Everyone was waiting. People were like, we donated 25 bucks for a copy of this book. Where is it? Like, uh-huh. what are you and I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. And that's what made me finish it. The interesting thing is now that I'm working on my second book, I don't have that pressure because I didn't do a Kickstarter. So there's not any people like, you know, looking at their watches being like, you, what, where's the book, you know? Right, right. Um, and then I also have this idea of trying to write something quote unquote good. And so it's interesting. I feel one, I feel way more paralyzed. I'm trying to figure out a way around that, which is interesting. But I, so I self-published. I was at first I was like, oh, maybe I'll get a traditional publishing deal. But I queried a bunch of agents and a few were interested, but they were like, oh, Cheryl Strade's wild already exists. So this won't right. sell. And I was like, but I'd been studying, um, I've been studying the market for a while. And I was like, actually, like, this is a really thriving niche, like long distance, yeah. like, you memorizer. it's like a, it's a thriving niche. So 
I decided just to self-publish and I had a friend who'd been self-publishing on Amazon and, and doing well and like making money off her memoir. And so I, I studied that like the whole time I was working on this book for like two years, I was studying it, studying like Amazon's algorithms and like search engine optimization and mm-hmm. like categories and all this different stuff because Amazon, which is extremely evil, <laughs> has 35% of the world book market. Mm-hmm. So if you can make it with an Amazon, you've made it period. Right. And so there's all these things you can do to help your book be visible, like the number of reviews you have and, um, the cover and the title, like my title has keywords in it Mm. and all these different things. And there's this ask at the end of the book where I'm like, Hey, um, if you leave me a review on Amazon, it'll help my book stay visible. So then more people leave me reviews and then that keeps my book visible. And then it's really cheap. Uh, the ebook is really cheap and all these different things. So I self published and it was really fun. You know, I got to like wear all these different hats and figure out how to format and publish a book. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and I had some friends help me edit, which was like insanely amazing because I don't know if I would ever volunteer to do that for someone, but people were down and I was like, wow, that's incredible that you want to help me look for typos. my book i love doing um, that stuff yo i'll, I'll help you that. i love doing wow. it that's incredible sign me up inc- okay <laughs> well some people have the brain for it like i will see typos and like other people won't see the typos that i see and it's fun for me it's like a it's like a hunting game. i don't hunt but like like ooh, let me see how many mistakes i can find you know at the back of the cereal box like how many what's wrong with this picture and then so i'm good at those activities that's awesome yeah So the people ended up helping me. um, Yeah, they said like one person was like, I love copy editing. It's relaxing. And I was like, that's amazing. Like That is so helpful. And one friend, I was like, will you just read my manuscript and start highlighting when it's boring and don't stop highlighting. Nice. And I just cut all of that out. Like everything she highlighted, I just cut out. And that was really helpful. (laughs) That's a really good prompt. And I was like, I, I was like, I can't believe you want to help me like this is amazing. So I did that. And then, um, yeah, I hired Alejandro to do the cover, which I love. And there's all these books that help you like when you're making a Kindle book that like tell you how to do stuff. And yeah, so I self published. and It was great. That's amazing. Thank you that I mean, you're, you're inspiring in, in all the ways, but um, that particularly feels really exciting to hear as somebody who's trying who's trying to write um, a book. So thank you for yeah, that. If you decide to self-publish and you ever want to talk about it, you know, call me up. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> cool. Carrot, you're so fucking cool. And we would love you to stay and join us for our segment called uh, Reading, Watching, Listening. Would you like to join us and tell us what you are reading, watching, listening this week? Yeah, totally. I <clears throat> am reading... It's not really related to what we've been talking about, but I've been reading this book called Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. And a good friend of mine is reading it, too. Um, And so we have this sort of book club where we've been like texting about it and talking about it a lot. And it's really interesting. It like, you know, you know, I have trauma. A lot of my friends have trauma. A lot of us have trauma like this world we live in is intense and a lot of us are dealing with a lot of trauma, especially in the queer community. And this book, the way it's written is like really, it sounds like an academic book. I have a hard time reading really academic books, but it's like really accessible. And it's written in like a really, um, a really accessible way that I find really easy to read. And it's really useful. It just sort of like uh, dissects like our stress responses to things and like the different survival response, like survival mechanisms we've all developed as a result of trauma. And mm. it's great. It's really helpful. Awesome. And then I'm also reading all of these books about the Arctic and the history of resistance in the Arctic, like Arctic voices, resistance at the tripping tripping point, which is like a collection of writings about like Anwar and indigenous activism and all these different things in the Arctic. And I'm reading a book about pack rafting too, even though we're not pack rafting on this trip. We have inflatable kayaks, but it feels applicable. (laughs) Watching? Um, Gosh. It could be like a YouTube video or like a clip of something. It doesn't need to be like a movie or a show. I've been watching. Or like your dogs. Do you watch your dogs? Because they're really cute. I watch your dogs on social media. (laughs) I watch my dogs play a lot. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. They're really cute. I never watch anything either. 
carrot, so I get it. <laughs> Sometimes I watch things. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I was watching that documentary about the Rajneeshi cults in Eastern Oregon. Yeah. Wild, wild country, which is super good. And one thing I loved about it is I love when there are complex, evil female protagonists, because I feel like in traditional media movies, that's not something you see a lot. Like there will be these like evil male characters who are like super complex, Mm -hmm. but women aren't. And I feel like Sheila was like the perfect, perfect, like complex female villain. Mm -hmm. I don't know if y'all have seen that. I've only seen the first episode, but I'm really excited to keep watching. So yeah, that's (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah. And listening. I have been listening to a lot of pop music when I, while I trail run. So nothing really exciting. I'm sorry, pop music. Please tell more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Haley Kiyoko, her new album. She's this like queer. I, she, she blows my mind. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh. Like if, when I was, a young queer if I had had her like Mm -hmm. how amazing is it that the youth have her these days because Mm -hmm. I think she's like she's in her early 20s and her fans are young and she's just like super queer pop musician and like very low-key mainstream cool great Melody I am reading a lot of zines for my final project in my classes I have my students make zines which is just really more for me so I get to read zines for final grades so that's really awesome I uh, have also been reading about some really amazing pop stars that are like, I thought the same. I'm like, wow, I wonder if she existed when I was little, if I would have been different or it would just been nice to have her around. I am watching This Is America, the music video by Childish Gambino. We haven't been on air since it debuted. So there's that. Mm-hmm. And then also um I've been watching, I love to watch SNL clips, I guess. I'm turning into that old person. And so I've been watching the secondhand news guy clips. Like he basically mispronounces words and then, and then his shtick is like where he goes, ah. I think I'm right. I think it was Obama when it's not. You have to be there. Anyway, so that's on Weekend Update. And I've always really loved Weekend Update on SNL because it's like the news and I'm trained in journalism as well. So yada, yada. And then I'm listening to, okay, I got some got some students in my life who really uh, respect me and want me to be a better person. And so they've instructed me. They've taught me what drill the difference between drill and trap music is in the rap world, mm-hmm. which I'm still, <laughs> I think I know, but they were like, teaching me about that, which I really appreciate. And then I've also gotten into this hip hop artist through my student who did a zine on him. His name's Propaganda. And he is a African American man, but he identifies as a Christian rapper. But the way that he talks about Christianity is like in the like the way that Jesus was an activist. What it basically means is that his music is not about hoes and gangs and drugs and stuff, which is all fine. But that's just not my style. So he has very awesome, political, righteous music and one of my favorite songs right now by him is called Crooked. So shout out to my student Maya for doing that zine and uh, introducing me to propaganda. Awesome. The end. Cool. What about um, you, Rachel? I'm reading Carrot's book. It's really good. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of Carrot Quinn, but she wrote this book. I'm reading it. Um, it is so I'm good. Watching. It like blends like love and sex with trails and oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> And it's perfect for my brain because it bounces around all the time. I'm like, oh, great. I don't have to, like, remember things. <laughs> I'm sorry. I interrupted your RWL. Please continue. No, it's all good. I'm watching a couple things. I didn't have time to watch things for a while, but um, I'm actually watching more than one thing. But I'll talk about the documentary on Netflix about Cuba. I am a person who really loves Cuba and feel very committed to people understanding it in ways that I think most people in the U.S. do not. And so I was really skeptical about this documentary on Netflix being about Cuba, how they would present it. But as most documentaries, I think, hope you know, at least on Netflix anyway, would probably try to be like, quote unquote, balanced, which is, you know, sort of a myth. But that said, I do actually think they are doing a good job of having different perspectives talk about things. And they have Marxist historians that are saying the correct version of it, in my opinion. Um, And then they do have sort of like counter understandings of particular struggles and um, etc. So it's it's not it's not bad, I would have to say. Um, But I haven't I've only seen the first segment listening to this is kind of like a boring sometimes I feel embarrassed when I like listen to basic indie rock but I guess Melody that's sort of Do our it. thing sometimes so the lead singer of this band Frightened Rabbit that I was really mm-hmm. into passed yeah. away 
And uh, so I've been sort of listening to their music. Sort of Wait, what? It, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. In sorry. a tragic just, way? Yeah. Like no. related. Huh? Yeah. Oh, like no. Do you know, Kara, do you know this band? No. Frightened Rabbit. Oh, my God. Sorry, that is so out. sad. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Can you hear me what now? I work for Verizon. That I asked Carrot if, if she knew what Frightened Rabbit was, and she didn't. And so I was about to explain that, like, their first album, it was, like, gut-wrenching. Like, it was just so sad. And, like, one of my friends who was going through a big depression listened to it. And you just you just feel, like, so sad listening to it. And so it's really yeah. sad. It's like an Elliot Smith kind of thing where you're like, oh, yeah. my God, you oh. knew that they were so sad. And yeah. even though they had – they found a lot of fame and, like, you know – things that most people would love to have. Oh my God. When did that happen? Just this week. Like he was missing and then they just confirmed. Yeah. So, so sorry to be like a super bummer. No, it's good to, it's good to talk about this stuff. Um, It's good. And it really was. I mean, he wrote, I mean, it was some beautiful music, I think. Yes. Um, So actually we won't end on that note because I forgot that carrot. We didn't ask you where people can find you. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you? Yes. On this hike across Alaska, I'll be writing a blog post from the trail every single day. The first month we're out there, I I won't have any reception. We don't have any reception for any of it. But in the middle, we're taking a week off. We're hitchhiking into town when we cross the one single road that we'll cross. And during that week, I will put up, start scheduling the first 30 blog posts. So, and that will be approximately July 15th that we reach the road. So, there's going to be a blog post from every day and there's a bunch of blog posts I've already written about like preparation and gear and different things and intersectionality and this organization. That's all at carrotquin.com and you can just Google carrot blog, carrot hiking, whatever, because my name is unique enough. So works really well with the Google. And then Instagram, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram and that's just carrotquin on Instagram. Um, I put a lot of photos up there and yeah, I'll be putting photos from the, from the trail up there and on my blog. So those are the two blessed places. And then I have a public Facebook page that's like Carrot Quinn Hikes, but it's really dumb. In my opinion, Facebook is dumb. Don't go there. <laughs> we, we we mostly agree. Melody's not on it anymore. We have a we have kind of like a thriving Facebook group for our podcast. So I, I go on there for that. But agreed, it's mostly mostly dumb. Well, and I yeah. think Carrot um, Amazing when Carrot was you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mel. No, um, just as ahead. another just so people don't feel bad about being on Facebook. I mean Carrot, when you were talking about the the hiking groups and stuff, I think the groups is really helpful, but yeah. the like individual usage of Facebook is just whatever. So Shout out to yeah. groups. Shout out to Facebook yeah. groups. Yeah. 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 Fa- no, Facebook can be really useful. I do a lot of stuff on Facebook. Yeah. I'm not – people – social media is so helpful. So yeah. definitely not hating on any social media. Well, thank you again. We loved this. And, yeah, it's just so, so cool to hear your thoughts. And you're super inspiring and fascinating. And we really, really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. You guys asked the best questions. I wish everyone would ask these questions. It was really exciting to talk to y'all. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Go to schools named after the clan founder. We're around town as y'all don't see why we frowning. Native American students forced to learn about when opera Sarah. How is that fair, bruh? Some heroes unsung and some monsters get monuments built for them. But ain't be all a little bit of monster. We crook it. Man, your heroes are worthless. And man can show try, but only God gives purpose. You crook it. Be humble or be quiet. Your kingdom can catch flames as effortless as riots. Entire empires are called. Our castle chill and the strength of your whole team is crumpled with one meme it's crooked uh, your whole works is twisted he ain't old enough to buy beer but gone and list him send him to iraq and why he come back crazy because no human being should see the inside of a baby you expect trust in a system that needed to be convinced of the madness of trust in a court that waved a confederate flag it's crooked that's twisted demented perverted got fallen written all no. over yep and got the nerve you want to stay on this or jump on Let's something else jump on the other one okay okay bye